I'm Walt Lloyd, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben. Are we're we're recording right now. It's the uh, Cinematography Podcast. It is. We are recording the Cinematography Podcast. Hey, who's on the show today? Uh, today on the show is someone who I have an endless amount of affection for, the amazing Walt Lloyd, and he's somebody who, uh, full disclosure, I have actually worked with. As, like I have been the director when he was the cinematographer, and he's amazing. He he may be the the longest get for us too, because we talked about wanting to have him on the show before the show ever was a show. Like yeah. if we ever did the show, like we'd want to have him on. Well, and, and and I remember talking to Walt about it, and he was sort of like, "Who wants to hear a bunch of cinematographers?" talk there you know blah 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 and i think that walt has uh turns uh, out hundreds of thousands of people want to do that that, that is true yeah. but walt has a very self-deprecating sense of humor and i feel like he's unbelievably fascinating and doesn't see it because he lived the life and and i'm talking to him and even though i know a lot of his stories he still always surprises me with new stuff and it was just uh it was wonderful to see walt i just think he's an amazing visionary cinematographer he shot steven soderbergh's first two films sex lies and videotape and the tragically underrated kafka which also looks incredible a beautiful beautiful film he shot shortcuts for robert altman he shot uh, Private Parts, the movie about Howard Stern. Yeah, with a breakthrough performance by Paul Giamatti. Put him, um, put him was, on a lot of people's maps. He shot, uh, he was a DP on The Wonder Years. He was a DP on, I think, the first two seasons of House. He's worked uh, with Neil LeBute recently. Yes, so. yeah, on a, on a Netflix series called uh, The Island. He's just amazing, and he has an amazing life story, and he's, uh, and he'll get into this uh, in the interview, but I, I think it's wonderful. He's one of the not film-schooled people that we've had on here, and I think that we get a lot of, uh, myself included, film school pukes, and it's great to have somebody who... Uh, who's not a film school puke. Who is not a film school puke in any way. And has had a uh, highly, highly enviable career that uh, continues uh, to, to ride on through today. Absolutely, and uh, I can't wait to see what he does next, and uh, and I'm just glad we got him in here. Hey, so for today, for our close focus topic, I think we've got a good one, which is the fan culture is ruining ruining the world. No, it, no, that's that's okay. That's not, I think not a that, good summary. That sounds like what the fan culture problem that we're talking about would say, because recently I I got the Academy screener for The Rise of Skywalker, the the new movie from the series you may have heard of. I've never heard of this. It's Star called Wars. The Star Wars. Yeah, what is this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I'm glad I got a screener because, again, yeah, that way you didn't have to go to a crowded movie theater and see a um, hundred lightsabers light up in the in the theater. Well, when the, honestly, the music starts, I would have yeah. loved to have done that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's more about, you know, having a baby, having a baby and just, Ooh, swear jar. Sorry. Here yeah. you go. Here's some coins for the swear jar. But no, just not being able to get to the theater very often. But I was I was excited to see it. And the last three movies in the Star Wars uh, trilogy, the J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson ones, I. I have enjoyed. I think that they are good. Did any of them change my life completely and blow my mind like the original Star Wars trilogy did? Well, you are wearing Yoda ears right now I, underneath I, your headphones. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you're, you're, no for I'm everyone, a, everyone a Qui-Gon at home. Jinn uh, codpiece <laughs> under my pants. Oh, 
<laughs> uh, ben is not wearing Yoda ears or a cod piece. He is. Uh, you don't know. You don't know what I got under my pants. Anyway. <laughs> well, that's, that's what you think. <laughs> I like where this is going. Okay, so but, uh, uh, no, but but uh, but here's the thing. Like, if you go on Twitter or you go on Facebook, and I'm seeing people's reactions. Like, the reactions are firstly wildly varying. Some people saying like. Well, J.J. Abrams had had a huge mess to clean up after the Ryan Johnson uh, Last what? Jedi and people saying the exact opposite about how, you know, like the Last Jedi is their favorite of of the whole series and the rise of Skywalker is garbage. And I feel like it's not garbage. No, it's a movie. Yeah, and I think it's movies. like, hey, everybody, it's light entertainment. T- take a breath. This is popular entertainment. That's all it is. It's casual. It. And I'm a casual fan and you should be too. There are people in these movies who are working at the top of their game, actors, visual effects, artists, composers, you know, and yes, writers and it's like, and directors and DPs. And they're doing really good work that has to satisfy like this insane, intense matrix of expectations, the stakeholders that well, there's that, but also just like the fan base, the fan base, and the fan base goes them. back to 1977. But then also there's giant fans of the three prequels, episodes one, two, and three, which I didn't think even existed. But turns out, I I met someone just the other day who works for a major industry publication who told me, yeah, screw the original series, they're all about the prequels. Uh, I have met several. Uh, I I hate to stereotype people by their generation, but several millennials. millennials well, yeah, it, for whom their happy yeah their happy Star Wars thoughts all started with episodes one, two, and three. Good for them. I'm not trying to crap on them. No, I, I feel I, like. It, it, this this maybe kind of harkens back to what we talked about with Francis Ford Coppola's disparaging comments about comic book movies. It's like, can we just Star Wars is kind of a comic book movie. It's it's the comic books came after, but yeah, it's it's popular entertainment. And my wife and I recently watched uh, The Empire Strikes Back on Disney Plus, and I hadn't seen it in decades. And you know what? That movie really holds up. It's great. It's I think still the best one of the whole series. But that doesn't mean that the rest of them are garbage. And that also doesn't mean that I'm right about it being the best one. It's not just Star Wars. Uh, like whatever it was three years ago when when they made the Ghostbusters movie. Yeah. I feel like the vitriol that just poured out of people because Tons of vitriol. because it's like we're recasting, uh, you know, you're ruining my childhood, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, we're not ruining your childhood. The Ghostbusters is still there. And if if you think that we're ruining your childhood, watch Ghostbusters 2 again. <laughs> Ghostbusters 2. It's oh, not man. it's not the best. Mm. It's you know right. what? I really enjoyed Solo, but I think I can only say that I enjoyed Solo because being a casual fan, it seems like the people who were hardcore into Star Wars. They they couldn't they couldn't get over that. They couldn't. Yeah, they couldn't. I, I and I honestly, I loved Rogue One. I thought Rogue One was a lot of fun, and I think the Mandalorian is a lot of fun. And I think that you know, it's fair to set whatever story you're going to set in this world in this world, and also. You're not going to have greatness if some of them aren't bad. <laughs> like if, if someone's never given the leash to possibly be bad, they're not going to be great. And that's just the nature of making anything. You know, uh, I, in my youth, I, I worked in video stores. I know you worked in a theater. Several theaters. I, I'll tell you that I worked with this employee. I think her name was uh, Janine. And Janine, it didn't matter what the movie was that someone brought up to the counter they wanted to rent. If they said, hey, have you seen this? Is it any good? She would always say, oh, yeah, it's really good. And I finally had to stop her once when she brought up when someone brought up. I don't remember what it was, but it, it was, was Jimmy the Boy Wonder. Wasn't I it? think it was something with Polly Shore, but it, I just remember really, Son-in-law. really not liking it. In the Army go, now. 
I don't Biodome. I don't know what it might have been Encino Man. I don't, I don't know what it was. But Encino Man's actually pretty good. Yeah, it may, maybe it wasn't Encino Man. I, I don't remember what it was, but it, it was something I think with Polly Shore. Regardless, they brought it up, and I was like, "Have you seen that? Do you really believe that's a great movie?" And she looked at me, and she was like, "Whatever. It's only a movie. Like, you know, you shouldn't have any opinion about this." But I think that it is the extremes, the extremists who are like super hardcore die hard they're going home and they're making their favorite you know fabric art crafts for whatever the movie <laughs> is or thing that they're really into and I, I can't really knock that I think that some of those crafts are, are quite delightful but but, but really uh, the other extreme of having so flipped to say like oh yeah it's not a piece of art or it's not a, it's not anything it's just a movie it's two hours of diversion I guess that's fine that can be two hours of diversion that that's wonderful but at, uh, that's maybe a movie at its worst at its best it should be thought provoking it should like make you make you question something about you know your world or your place in it but yeah uh, I mean like I forget if it was Siskel or Ebert but somebody asked him like what makes a great movie and uh, their metric I've always thought about it was a movie that has three great scenes and no bad scenes Hmm. that was what made a great movie to them wow okay and I'm like yeah I can kind of see that Hmm. sorry to meet it no, no, that's okay. My 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 anecdote about working in a video store is is, is better left to history anyway. So history, history. <laughs> anyway, uh, so hey Ben, it's coming up to be Oscar nomination time again. Last time we did a special episode with uh, the Wandering DP, which it was, was awesome. a, which was fun. It was fun skyping with someone in Australia. It that was. was that they was were very on the novel. Other side of the earth. Hey, uh, we should try to open it up maybe to our listenership hey if you think that we should if you listen to other podcasts and you think oh, they have a good opinion about uh, academy awards maybe we should try to team up send us a instagram message a facebook message or something let us know who you think we should try to team up with we uh, could possibly do leonard malton again i, I mean i don't know we could do yeah, something we can always ask it that'd be amazing if, if we could uh, bring him back in here i also think that you know if there's a take on the oscars that we're not seeing in the podcast universe, you know, that we could tackle, please feel free to suggest it. Yeah, we, we, we want to hear from you, dear listeners. We want to know where we're falling down and where we're doing okay and where we should do better. Thank you very much for the, the feedback we've been receiving so far. We'd, we'd like some more on this. Uh, let, let us know. And without further ado, here is Walt Lloyd. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras in Burbank, California, with my excellent, good, amazing friend Walt Lloyd. We've been we've been wanting to bring Walt in since before there even was a podcast. I cannot I can't thank you enough for finally coming out and making the time to come. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so, excited to be. Here. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you. Here. So I always start off with one question, and I think you're one of the people who kind of put this thought into my head, even just by watching you work. I don't think that we ever discussed this, but I have a theory that cinematographers, when they work, when when you're looking at a script, when you're thinking about what you're going to do, you're reading the script, you're either imagining it as a, as in 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 the compositions you're going to create, or you're imagining kind of the light. And the you know the lighting and the texture and the that part of the cinematography. Would you say that you are one of those, or am I am I off base? And I, I could be off base. Actually, the first time I read a script, I'm looking for the story, mm-hmm. and I'm looking for how it you know strikes me. Second time I read it, then I start seeing you know visuals. But what, uh, of the visuals, what what hits you first? Stills. You mean yeah. you mean how do they manifest themselves? In, yeah, like, in my, is, is it a composition thing, or is it a lighting thing, or is it something else? Well, it's it's, it's a combination. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's composition. Sometimes it's movement. You know what seems appropriate for this scene. Sometimes uh, it's lighting. Mm-hmm. Many times it's lighting because the lighting, of course, sets the mood. Really, 
And, well, and, uh, I, and, and I find uh, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of blow this out right here. We've talked about you on the on the podcast before, but you uh, were the cinematographer on on the one movie I've directed, Alien Raiders, the unfortunately titled Alien Raiders. Uh, it wasn't Alien Raiders when we were making it. So I'm going to have a little bit of a bias in that. I, I know what it's like to be in the trenches with you. Uh, my sympathies. <laughs> uh, I, I was lucky. I was beyond lucky to get to work with you. Yeah, well, thank you. And I feel the same. And that film originally titled Supermarket. Correct. Which was a brilliant title, I thought. But they don't let cameramen, you know. <laughs> Weirdly, they, don't, they also don't let directors decide what the titles yeah, yeah, are over there so. at Warner Home Video. <laughs> uh, well, so Supermarket, Alien Raiders, was a uh, wonderful experience. Awesome. And, uh and, uh, and you're still willing to talk to me, low these ten years later. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and and we worked twice together. That's true. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Well, so. while we were working on Alien Raiders, I had mentioned to you that I uh, I used I participated in a 48 hour film project called uh, Instant Films, which was actually co-founded by somebody who was also a guest on the show, Charles Pappert. I don't know if you know Charles, but that was where I met Charles. And you said, "Oh, that sounds really cool." And I hadn't done one in in a while. And the next time one came up after Alien Raiders was over, I asked you if you would be interested to do it. And you know, here we are in in my house at three in the morning making a making a short film called "Shut Up." I said, "Shut up," and you know, I'm like, I, I couldn't believe that you you had agreed to do it. Well, it, well, it was a ball, and and uh, as I remember, we swept the, f- the, the we swept the festival. We did, we did. <laughs> yeah, that was actually I haven't done but, one since because I don't really feel like we can top it. It was written yeah. by a woman named uh, Julianne Cross. That's it was an right. amazing script. We happened yeah. to pull like the perfect cast. Like there was just like it w- it was just luck of the draw. But but you know, uh, back to supermarket. Supermarket was kind of like forty, the making a film of forty-eight hours. Oh my god, yes! But it, but it was what? What did we do? Twelve, to fifteen. Days? It was fifteen-day shoot. Yeah. It was three five-day weeks, and uh, I was brought on six weeks before shooting had to start. And you were brought on, I think, maybe two weeks later. You foolishly agreed to come on board, and we had to do it in fifteen days. And the script was undergoing drastic revisions running up to the Writers Guild strike, which started right in the middle of our prep. So we had Julia Fair, who was doing the rewrite, was like furiously writing as fast as she could because everybody knew the Writers Guild was going to go on strike. And so after that, the only person who could make any script changes were myself or if the actors ad-libbed. So we, right. we, had, a, we had a lot of, of ad lib. Yeah. You, you know, funny enough, when I look back at it, I, I don't feel like we were incredibly rushed you know mm-hmm. even if it was a 15 i mean shooting all in one location certainly that helps. helps out yeah and um for those for those people who haven't seen it which is probably most people listening to this it all takes place in a supermarket at night hence the title supermarket, supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> oh well yeah no it was a great experience and i i thought a, a really good film and also a lot of fun to work on, which in my book is a, a major criteria of a, of a good film. Well, besides myself, you've worked with several first-time feature directors, including Jiho Lee, who introduced us, but all, but probably most notably to a lot of our listeners, uh, Steven Soderbergh, right, on Sex Lies and Videotape. Mm-hmm. So, so let's kind. Of, we're going to go ahead and, and we'll, we're going to get up to to that. But let's kind of rewind. Uh, you were not someone who went to film school, correct? No, I I actually went to. To, uh, the university to study music. I was uh, I started playing professionally when I was 13 years old. What were you playing? Uh, percussion. 
Nice. Notice I didn't say drum. <laughs> but a percussionist is a drummer who can read music. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yes, uh, and I, I, I actually started out with a big band, a twenty-one piece uh, dance orchestra. Really? Yeah, string of pearls, sing, 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 that kind of stuff, and it was just awesome. And once I started playing that, I go, oh my god, this is my life. Of course, you know, the Beatles came in and they were kind of putting a, a, a crimp on, you know, big dance bands. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I really wanted to be a musician. And uh, so that's what I went to, to the university to study. I, uh, I was a military brat. And so didn't have a lot of exposure to film. As mm-hmm. a kid, we traveled around and hit, you know, real hot spots for the film community like Waco, Texas and Huntsville, Alabama. I thought for some reason, I thought you lived in Florida. I, that's where I went to high school. My dad, okay. my dad. Oh God, thank God, retired when I started high school from the from the military, and mm-hmm. he was in the space program. And so uh, we moved to Florida, and uh, he went to work for NASA's uh, Space Division or Chrysler Space Division. And uh, I went to high school there, and it was I like thought, Cocoa Beach, that area. Just south of Cocoa Beach, there's a town called Satellite Beach. Oh, I know Satellite Beach well. Do you really? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm from Orlando. So. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, so I graduated from Satellite High School. And um, yeah, I I just remember sitting on the beach watching those Saturn Vs go up, you know. It's crazy. And, and I thought, wow, oh, when I'm older, there's going to be rockets going up everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know the space program was going to kind of end for a while. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what started uh, sparking your interest? So you you weren't exposed to a lot in the way of movies, and and you were studying music. What started to steer you towards uh, filmmaking? A meat slicer. Oh no. Oh yes. <laughs> I, know, I actually yeah. know this story. I'm <laughs> you told me this when we first met. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was injured. I was working my way through college, and I got injured uh, in a restaurant uh, mm-hmm. by a meat slicer who. You know, didn't recognize the difference between salami and my hand. And uh, meat is meat. Yes. And uh, I, you know, I couldn't play. I couldn't bend my hand for for quite a while after that. And uh, I was really, really depressed. And one uh, weekend, I uh, was driving up in the mountains north of Gainesville, Georgia. I, w- I went to the University of Georgia, and uh, which is not a huge film school or wasn't at the time. <laughs> and uh, as I was driving up in the mountains, I see a bunch of white trucks buried up to their axles in the mud on a, on a logging trail. And, and uh, it, was, it was right at Tallulah Gorge. And I thought, what the, what the heck is going on? <laughs> and I stopped, and it was uh, John Borman's crew filming Deliverance. Oh, wow. And uh, so I sat up there for uh, a couple of days watching them. And, you know, they're, uh, they just let you watch them make deliverance. Well, no, the Tallulah Gorge is huge. And they were down in the gorge and I oh. was sitting up above. And uh, do you know, like what parts of the movie you watch them make? If well, you watch it today, you know, what was really interesting, uh, you know, they worked uh, all up there through a, diff- a couple of different parts of the river. But they were right below the dam there. And mm-hmm. I don't know exactly because it was hard to see them actually down in the gorge. But I do know that when they wanted rapids, they seemed to call up to the Corps of Engineers and they'd open up the dam and get some rapids going. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how organized it was, but all I know is that I saw guys that were 50 years old, you know, rappelling down the side of a gorge. And me and my depression about not being able to 
sit behind a drum set anymore, I thought, oh my God, that looks really interesting. And maybe I could do that. So when I went back to school, I, first of all, I couldn't I couldn't work in the restaurant anymore because the meat slicer was like this alien monster <laughs> <laughs> sitting there, and I couldn't walk by it. I really I couldn't. just imagine it with like eyes yeah, that followed yeah, you around yeah. the restaurant. Well, like. that's how I felt, <laughs> and uh, and so I got a job at at this uh, theater uh, that was called the Georgia Theater. It was uh, the oldest theater in town, right in the middle of this little college like movies town. Movies or theater theater. Movies, mm-hmm. and so within the next nine months, I saw uh, Walkabout, mm. Mash, and Catch Twenty Two. Oh wow! And it changed my life. I, you know, then I knew I had to somehow get into film. So if the meat slicer had gotten you a year, I wish I had a, enough of an encyclopedic knowledge. It'd be like it would have been The Sound of Music and blah. blah and you would have been like, ah, who cares? But just like those those three movies, those are amazing. Yeah, those like three, the, the the culture was turning and uh, exactly, yeah, exactly. And and the, those were those were monumental films. You know, totally. So actually, uh, and then later, well, we'll get to this, but you end up working with Robert Altman. I, I know, and that was like, you know, like I thought that would never happen, and that, <laughs> that was amazing. like yeah. the most amazing thing, and you know, ever. But yeah, so I graduated and uh, jumped in my car and drove out to L.A., thinking, yeah, I'll somehow get into film business. I didn't know one person here. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up living in the car for about six weeks. Oh, uh, got kicked off a of UCLA campus a couple of times, sleeping in the backseat of my car. But uh, somehow. Got a job with a advertising agency. I, I still and I say advertising. It was a local retail advertising guy. Mm-hmm. His name was Barry Leon Brussel. And I saw an ad, and you know that's back when you printed ads in the newspapers or whatever. And I saw an ad that he needed an assistant at this ad agency. So I went to talk to him. I didn't realize what it was, but it, you know it, he just made little retail ads for everything. And he sold them, and he, he would he would bid on time and and you know buy local time but i must have looked really rough because i went <laughs> i went to meet him on a sunday evening and god bless barry leon russell because he looked at me he said uh, uh you really need a job and i go yeah i really need a job and he handed me a hundred dollars he said show up he had an office at the corner of sunset and gower he said show up tomorrow morning there and he said uh you know don't uh, rip me off and, uh, you know, I mean, $100 was significant back then. I mean, know? if you're dead broke today, $100 isn't insignificant. Yeah, right. You can get three cups of coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm here to say that you can get 25 <laughs> yeah, cups of coffee at Starbucks okay. for $100. Uh, it was a hyperbole. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just want to drink 25 cups of coffee. That's all. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I spent 11 months here. It was during the oil crisis. Oh, wow. uh, and, uh there wasn't a lot of work, and it was really depressing, and there was so much smog. You're not, you weren't even born yet, but uh, I don't think that's uh, true. What year? This would be like mid seventies. Seventy four. Well, I'm flattered that you think I'm that much younger than yeah. I am. Go on. <laughs> I, I, and I'll uh, have you know, I was born in 1971. Oh my God! Well, you remember then. At that time, you couldn't see one block, you know, because of the smog. And uh, I've seen pictures. I, I was I was, was in Florida. It was oh that's right. It, it was it was horrific, and I had a migraine headache the whole time I was here. Why 
did people put up with that at that time? It seems crazy that there's that much pollution and people would stay here. They want to they want to put up with it again. They want to do away with government regulations. Uh, yeah. you know, oh, oh, well, that's a whole different. It's story. a different podcast. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I, I just like I I mean like there's a lot there's a lot to put up with to live in L.A. There's the traffic. There's this and that. But since I've lived here anyway, breathing is reasonably okay. Yes, I, I mean a it's time. a it's a whole different environment now. You know, it's yeah. incredible. Blue skies. You, you yeah. know, I could I'd see why you know twelve, fourteen, however many million <laughs> people want to live here. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so working there, like, at what point did you start? Uh, were, were you making inroads into the film business? Were you were you working? Not at, it? at all. He had a guy that shot sixteen millimeter film for this, and and that's when I first you know kind of became aware of film. And and I would go along with him, and I'd carry the cases, and we would we would shoot a little commercial at a local Toyota dealership or whatever, and. Uh, He'd go back and he would splice it together and uh, it'd be on the air with uh, with Barry's voiceover in like two days. But again, like I said, it, it wasn't working out that well because there wasn't that much work. And so I went back to the South and I got a job actually somehow uh, in a public television station as a director in North Carolina, in yeah. Charlotte, North Carolina. And now, how, uh, long, how long did you hang in L.A. at that point? 11, 11 months. 11 months before you went back to yeah. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I stayed in North Carolina for three years. And and there was a film department in the television station, which I was incredibly interested in. But I wasn't in the film department. I was in the educational department there. What, now, what was it about the film that was, that was drawing you, that was kind of calling you at that point? The mystery of it, actually. The whole, the alchemy, you know, you, yeah. you, you put this stuff, you know, in the dark, in, in, the, in the film, in the camera, and it comes out, and you send it away to the lab, and they put it in chemicals, and, you know, if all goes right, you've got an image, <laughs> which reminds me, jumping ahead uh, <laughs> oh, no. to, to uh, one of the first, when I, I ended up in San Francisco, and one of the first guys I, w- I was an assistant to was a, a wonderful man who actually worked on the Woodstock documentary. His name was David Myers. Shot a lot of uh, concert stuff for a lot of different people, including Neil Young. Oh, sweet. And and uh, and he he told me right as I was starting to be an assistant, you know, and he knew I was interested in being a cinematographer. He was a wonderful guy. He said, well... <laughs> Do you know the difference between a professional and an amateur? And I go, and this is back when you went to dailies, you know, yeah. all the time. I go, no, not really. I thought professional, you get paid for it. He goes, no. <laughs> he goes, an amateur, when they go to dailies, if something was screwed up, will go, oh my God, I so screwed the pooch here, yeah. you know. He goes, a professional will look at it and go, that damn lab, they screwed me again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, I went back. I worked for about three years in North Carolina. And then I decided, a friend of mine actually gave me, this is going to sound very bizarre, gave me for my uh, uh, 28th birthday a uh, psychic reading. I, uh, you know, that's something that I don't do. You know, I, I, I never, they scare me, psychics. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I went to see this guy, you know, because of her, you know, and trying to be nice and collect the birth, 
birthday present. And he said, you know, I see you. You need, you need to get out of here. I see you someplace where the mountains meet the water. And I had never been to San Francisco. I didn't know anything about it. But for some reason, I got in my car and I drove out to San Francisco. And I got a job in a uh, commercial production house out there. And again, I see, I feel like I'm a charlatan, uh, you know, completely. Because, you know, I'm, I'm doing a few local, you know, public educational programs and I go out to uh, San Francisco and all of a sudden I've got a job as like a post-production supervisor, you know, and a producer for these um, now national commercials. And so it was called Snezel Films. It was, it was one of the bigger production outfits in San Francisco. And I was there for a couple of years, but I was there with the understanding that, uh, first of all, they had the uh, Panavision distributorship and a couple of stages there. So I would go in at, and after work and go into the camera department mm-hmm. and figure out how to put the camera together and, you know, what it's all about. Because as, as you know, I'm not a very technical person. So I, I did want to learn how to operate the camera. I, I, though. I, I just want to disabuse our <laughs> listeners of something, which is like you keep saying that you feel like a fraud and that you're not a technical person and all that stuff. I think that those feelings are typical amongst people who are good at what they do because they and, I'm, and I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot in any way, but I feel like. People who are good at what they do can always see that it could be done better or that there's someone better than them or that someone worked harder to get the opportunity. And that doesn't take away from the fact that you're brilliant at what you do. And and uh, I didn't know you when you were 28, but I can only assume that you had kind of that laser focus that I know you to have. And the fact that, you know, you're going there at night and putting the cameras together, the way you become technical is you do stuff like that. <laughs> like you're, yes, you're not someone, you're, you're someone who's more excited, uh, in my experience with, with creating the image and finding the image and, and the beauty in that than you are in talking about, you know, Bayer patterns and stuff like that. You're absolutely right. And in, in fact, I have a, I have a good story about that, which occurred about two years later, okay. <laughs> but, uh, Greg Snezel, who owned this company was, was kind, you know, and, uh, he agreed to let me be a camera assistant on some of the shoots. And then, you know, I, I had agreed to work for him for two years when he gave me the job. Now, and, can I just ask you, though, like yeah. when you were in North Carolina working at the public uh, television station, were you thinking that you eventually wanted to be a, a, a cameraman or a, a cinematographer? I, I wanted to be in film. So were you like on a trajectory to eventually get back to L.A. or get back to the film business somehow? To get to the film business somehow, but but you, you have to remember when I when I went to San Francisco, ILM was there, you mm-hmm. know, Lucas Coppola. The, I mean, there was a huge film scene going on up there, and in fact, some uh, of the best stuff that was going on at that time, yeah, was yeah. Zo- Zootrope and, and Lucas so it, yeah, it seemed like a nice place to be, and 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 at the time, my experience with LA was still um, painful, <laughs> <laughs> soupy air, and <laughs> and, li- and living in the back seat of the car. <laughs> oh. Was it at least a big comfy car you got to live in the backseat of? Uh, no, it was like a 1971 Dodge Dart. You oh, know? man. Yeah, it was, but it was a four-door, so <laughs> <laughs> easy, easy uh, egress, I guess, on that. But uh, So you start working as, as an AC in San Francisco? I, I start working as an AC, and then I meet this guy, the first film I ever worked on. I meet this guy because he, he comes into Snezel's. 
And, you know, I've been doing bids, you know, uh, for commercials, for very expensive commercials. But, uh, but I as, need, as a shooter? No, as, a, no, as a DP? No, bids for the for the shoot. Oh, you know, okay. As a, like a production manager. Or oh, whatever. okay. So, oh, so and, you, were, you were doing yeah. the other side of the bid. You were talking yeah, to DPs yeah. and stuff. And uh, this guy comes in. His name is Andre Gutfreund. And he, he with Peter Werner, had won. They had, were AFI students, but they had won an Academy Award for a documentary they had done called uh, Region of Ice, I think. But anyway, Andre comes in. He's, he's got this film he's directing. And Jan DeBont is the cameraman. And Andre says, listen, will you come production manage my film? And I go, no, but if Jan DeBont's shooting it, I will come and be the loader just to be around Jan DeBont because I had seen Katie Tipple and Turkish Delight that he had shot, and they were very interesting and beautiful films. And Jan was was just starting out in this country and and, and kind of a hot, you know, uh, cameraman or up-and-coming cameraman. So I made an agreement that I would secure the locations for this film and, you know, get everything location-wise straightened out if they would let me load so I could work with Jan. It was an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Jan, uh, Jan is a really intense character. If, if, you Maybe know, one day if we'll you get know. him in here. Yeah, that that would actually be very interesting yes. um, because I've never met anyone more passionate about what he does. So passionate that one time he told me, he said, Walt, when I look through the, the eyepiece, he goes, this is my world. He goes, anything that happens outside there, I don't care about. <laughs> and, uh, and it was sometimes dangerous because of that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I, you got to love the fact that he was so intense. So anyway, um, that was my first film that I worked on, and then I immediately got another film because uh, another great cameraman from that San Francisco, uh, Hiro Narita, was shooting Never Cry Wolf. Oh, yeah. Which at the time was called by everyone in San Francisco, Never Cry Rap, because it, <laughs> it had been shooting for so long. And, and you know, Carol Ballard, is a, he's a cameraman himself. He's, yeah. a, he's an incredible visual man, and Hero was a, as an artist like none other. But it, I was living up in Point Reyes in a cabin on the water and, and kind of secluded now because mm-hmm. I was freelancing. Hero, uh, David Myers introduced me to Hero, and uh, and Hero knew that I was a bit of a, a loner and, you know, uh, kind of a weirdo that was more interested in looking at birds than, you know, fighting traffic in San Francisco. Uh, <laughs> I think at the time I could identify about 70 different varieties of really? seabirds. Uh, but the second year they were shooting Never Cry Wolf. Uh, Hero the second year they were shooting... Well, it shot for 44 weeks, I think, total. What? Well, well because, you know, you had to shoot down, uh, shut down in the dead of winter. But uh, that caribou sequence in that film was, was the first year they didn't quite get what they wanted, so they went back the second mm-hmm. year. But uh, uh, they needed some, you know, like B-roll stuff, some, some nature stuff. And, uh, and Hero uh, thought that I was the right guy for it. And I, I was going to go up there with uh, an Audubon still photographer at first. And so uh, I had an interview with Carol and with uh, Walker Stewart, his producer. 
And, you know, like, again, I'm just new at this whole film thing. And I'm, I'm so excited to meet Carol Ballard, who just done Black Stallion. So yeah, yeah. I go racing up to San Rafael and I have my notepad in my hand and, and, you know, ready to take notes of everything he wants. And no one had actually prepped me that Carol was, I mean, I knew he was a visual person, but I didn't know that he hardly ever spoke. <laughs> so I go in for this meeting and I sit down in anticipation with my pencil and Carol says, capture spring. So I diligently write down capture spring and wait for the next order. <laughs> and, and there was this painful silence that lasted Oh, my God. It seemed like an hour, but it was probably about 45 seconds or a minute. But the, the, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. And Walker Stewart, who was standing there with kind of a grin on his face, um, reached down and opened a drawer and pulled out a little brown paper bag with $5,000 in it and says, go out back. You know, there are CM3s out there, which are basically, you know, these French cameras, which, which are great for what we were doing. Eight volt. So we ran them on 12 volt batteries. Uh, here I am getting technical, but because of the cold. <laughs> yeah. But I, after that experience or during that experience, I thought if this is the film business, I am so in. You know, I, Alaska is such an amazing place to be able to, to get flown into these remote locations and live in a tent, kind of like Charlie Martin Smith was doing, was, <laughs> was like the most incredible experience. And I was, I was euphoric for the whole, you know, three months I was up there. So how did, let me just interrupt one second. In case our listeners are not totally up on Carol Ballard, I'll just jump in real quick here. Sorry for the interruption, everyone. He directed movies like Black Stallion. Uh, it was the second unit cameraman for uh, Star Wars, A New Hope. So like really, here you are. This is your second job ever. You've worked with Hiro Narita and now Carol Ballard. Uh, I, I have a feeling since I've already gone through your filmography, there's a few more like illustrious names here in your extremely formative years that you get to uh, meet and shadow and learn from. Right, and, and now looking back on it, I feel so incredibly fortunate. At the time, of course, I felt incredibly fortunate, but it just seemed like that's what the film business was. I, I, I mean, you know, bumping into Francis Ford Coppola, you know, eating with uh, Jerry Brown at uh, Tommaso's in San Francisco, you know, uh, or getting picked up to shoot some additional stuff through ILM, but out in Death Valley with George Lucas on, on Star Wars. Uh, yes, looking back, I, I, I can't believe how fortunate I was. All right, so this is just a little bit of foreshadowing. And Ben, I'll let you, you know, take the reins back here in a second. But uh, John Seal, um, Ed Lockman. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of people in your early stages before before you're gracing marquees with your your own headlining credit. You are learning, uh, you know, at the feet of some of these people who've done it. You know, it, they had done already incredible stuff, but that also went on to do a bunch of stuff. I have to imagine that some of that rubbed off on you. Well, I hope so. John Seal is a very very dear friend of mine, and um, John and I share. A love of sailing also and, um, and uh, what happened with John is uh, and this is jumping ahead a couple of years which we better I'll be here for you know I'll keep you guys here but uh, John had just shot witness and uh, I had started operating a little bit 
And I got a call from, I don't even know from who, saying, listen, we need an extra camera operator out in the desert on a film called The Hitcher. Are you, are you interested? Can I tell you that like when I read that credit on your, on your uh, IMDb, I was like, I got to work with this guy. I, that alone, like I love the Hitcher so hard. I think to this day, the Hitcher is is one of the highlights uh, and and also one of the scariest. When I first screened that, after working on it, and because I ended up being the operator on that show, when when I I don't think I took a breath through the whole film. It scared the devil out of me. I mean, it's such I'm, a good it, movie. It's so great, and and you know, luckily I've been able to work with Jennifer Jason Lee again. You know, on that. Uh, Oh, well, Rutger Hauer, of course, was fantastic. Rutger Hauer, C. Thomas Howell. Uh, uh, Robert Harmon, uh, I thought, you know, did such a brilliant job on that film. But anyway, what was happening was, um, you know, there were a lot of cars destroyed in that film. <laughs> I, I, I heard 90. I don't think it was quite 90. But anyway, it's not the Blues it, Brothers. it took a while to set up all these things. And so I, I go in as like the, the you know, I, I don't know. I think there were at the time maybe three, four cameras, you know, being operated along. John always operated. And we're waiting for hours on the side of the hill. And so when I had flown in, I'd, ju- I'd just gotten off my boat and I flew and I had a uh, a backpack and it had a, a a magazine cruising world in it and and I hardly ever do this but but you know when you're sitting out in the in the desert and there's nothing going on waiting an interminable amount we're, we're actually waiting for a helicopter to come and and a hoist to get rigged uh, to lift the other helicopter to drop it but I was sitting there and I had this copy of cruising world on top of my backpack behind me and John seal walks by and I, I still hadn't met him. And all of a sudden, you know, I feel him going behind me, and then I hear the brakes go on. As he slides to a stop in the dirt, and he goes, what's this, man? And I go, well, you know, it's cruising world. He goes, you, you have a boat? And I go, yeah. And he goes, oh. And so he sat down, and we became fast friends right then. And uh, it ended up we sailed many, many, many times together. But after two days of dailies, I was supposed to only be out there for four days. After two days of dailies, he came to me and he says, listen, can you stay and operate uh, the A-camera for me? Go, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, uh, witness, witness was just, you know, incredible. Um, and I thought, I thought he was like the best cameraman. And I still think he's probably one of the best cameramen I've ever, ever you know, watched. Were there any like particular moves or uh, any, any anything that you picked up from him? Because I, I guess the what I'm angling for too is when you're out shooting nature, you're finding the composition inside natural. You know, like on uh, on Never Cry Wolf. I'm I'm assuming you're not doing a lot of lighting while you're capturing spring there. You're shooting kind of documentary style, I guess. Well, the, yeah, but but the beautiful thing about Alaska is the more into spring you get, the lower the sun goes around you on the horizon. So it's like magic hour, you, mm-hmm. you know, so friggin' but, long every day. But I guess the question I'm going for is, I mean, you're working for some amazing cinematographers. What did I pick up from John Seal? What did you pick? What, what did you pick up from John Seal? But more importantly, like, when did you start to get the taste of lighting, of of doing your own lighting? Well, you know, I watched John a lot. John always used two cameras, and and he was a master at being able to cross shoot and light for the cross shoot, and you know, light really well. 
I got, uh, I think it was my third job, fourth job, was a film called Radioactive Dreams. Mm -hmm. and, and this relates to the fact that, you know, as I said, I'm not very technical, but I am visual. It was my first job as the first camera assistant. And, um, and Thomas Malk was the cinematographer, Herzog's cameraman. Wow. And you know, Fitzgeraldo. Yeah. And uh, Albert Payun, a Hawaiian-Korean director uh, who did The Sorcerer and, and other things, was the, was the uh, director. We were shooting on the volcanoes on the uh, Big Island in Hawaii. And first of all, Albert was sensitive to the, to the altitude there. You know, he was having a hard time. I don't know that there was some, there was some conflict, you know, going on between Thomas and, and Albert, which I, I don't know too much about. But uh, I do know that Albert eventually came up to me and said, uh, you're the DP. And, <laughs> and uh, I said, I can't be the DP. I, you know, like I'm, you know, this is kind of my first gig. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I said, I'll do this since we're in Hawaii. I said, I'll, I'll finish all this day stuff. But, but I knew there was like 11 weeks of nights going on when we came back to L.A. And I said, do yourself a favor, hire someone, you know, that really knows how to light. And he hired Chuck Minsky. And Chuck Minsky, you know, who shot Pretty Women and many other, you know, uh, great films. Chuck was a great cameraman, kept me on as an operator. And uh, I learned so much from Chuck as I did from mm -hmm. John Seal. But, but uh, back onto Radioactive Dream, one of the, during the first or second week, there was an intervention that the camera crew had with me that the other assistants had with me. Oh, no. Yes. And the intervention was we were using uh, ultra cams. Is that what they were called? Ultra cams. I remember, yeah. I remember working on a show used, that used ultra cams, and they referred to them as ultra jams. Well, that's exactly what we referred to them. There were all kind of, all kind of uh, conspiracy theories about how they were made out of, uh, out of recycled military metal, and they were radioactive <laughs> and all this stuff. But anyway, I, I took seven bodies out there with me because you know they had the the reputation of jamming and well deserved mm -hmm. because you know, at rest there was like a two and a half amp draw on the mag and if you didn't hand tighten the the mag before you you plugged it in it would pop the film and yeah. the thing and and you know it'd get jammed and get wonderful but I anyway I don't quite understand all that but it sounds horrific. It was an interesting challenge. But we're, we're on the side of the volcano. I've got like three cameras built with, with 12 to 1s, you know, or 10 to 1s on them. And the sun was setting, and Albert comes to me and goes, oh, God, it would be great to get a shot of these, uh, these people walking into the sunset on the top of the volcano. And I go, right on. And so we had a, <laughs> we had a Jeep, and I said, okay, guys, come on, let's go, let's go, let's hurry, hurry. And they're going, okay, let us break down the camera. I go, no, no, just strap them to the back of the Jeep. And we strap these cameras with the lenses on the back of the Jeep. And I drove up the side of the mountain, you know, and first there's volcanic dust. There's all kind of crap. And uh, got up there, got the shot. It was just so beautiful. You know, we had a 600 millimeter lens and, it, you know, it was just incredible. And so when I get, when I get back to the, uh, to the hotel, we had a, a room where every night we clean the cameras. All the assistants were in there and I walk in because I had hung back, you know, talking to Albert about the next day. And the guy said, Walt, we need to talk to you, all the other assistants. And I go, yeah, what? And they go, 
you're not cut out for this. You're not, you're not an assistant. You, say, you don't care about the equipment enough to be an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I go, well, yeah, but it's just a tool, you know, to get the shot. You know, this is like a Hertz rent-a-car, isn't it? <laughs> they go, no, no. And, I mean, these guys honored, you know, and rightfully so, and worshipped this equipment. And I, for better or for worse, was looking at it as, God, whatever it takes, you know, it's only a, t- a tool to get the shot. It's yeah, a tool to make it's, the image. it's only a bunch of metal and, you know, a yeah. little bit of glass. And, and I'm sorry. And they I'm were sorry. ultra cams. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, no, no there, were, the, there were a, the lot, of, a lot of good films made with ultra cams. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so as it turned out after that intervention, you know, it was only a, a week or so when... I don't know. Maybe maybe they convinced Thomas to leave and and paid Albert to move me up out of the assistant department so that I wouldn't abuse the cameras anymore. But is that the moment for you when you said, "Okay, I'm going to pursue being uh, being a, a cinematographer specifically?" No, I think probably that moment was with John Seal mm-hmm. when I saw the joy and the pleasure that John got out of shooting mm-hmm. and on the Hitcher. Uh, Everything he did. I mean, I would, I would, you know, operate commercials for him when he came to town, and you know, and just talking to him. I mean, you know, when you, when you go sailing, you, there's there's a lot of time to sit and talk, and and he's such an enthusiastic, wonderful, you know, person, and he, he has such a, a joy of his his work. Was he encouraging to you, or was he like, "Hey, man, you're my operator," <laughs> or was he like, "No, no, you should you should keep on pushing." Because a good no, operator, no, no. a good operator is hard to come by. I knew I wanted. I mean, John actually was was just inspirational about everything. But there, there was a point when did I did I want to be a an operator? And because you can make good money being an operator. For oh, life. I, I would have made a hell of a lot more money than I made in a DP. <laughs> or or do I want to be a, a DP? And it was around the time that I met Steven Soderbergh, mm-hmm. and I got offered uh, Sex Lives and Videotape. And then the phone rings the next day, and it's Sidney Pollack saying, oh, I'm sitting here with uh, John Seal, and he says, you're a good operator, so I want you to come and operate this thing. And I go, oh, this isn't really Sidney Pollack. Who is it? You know, I figured it was some one of my friends playing a joke. Um, but uh, it was Sidney Pollack, and, uh, and I had to turn him down, you know, to shoot. Sex Lies. Sex Lies and Videotape, which, you know, kind of kicks off the independent film spree. But at that time, did it seem like a like a good idea to be making a crazy low budget movie? Lo- no, no. As a career choice. Yeah. God, you know, I had just taken, you know, if I can digress again, I had just taken the main photographic workshop. For, and it, it, the only point I think that it moved out of Camden, Maine, and it was in Monterey. Mm-hmm. And Laszlo Kovacs was actually giving the, the seminar. Oh, wow. And so I don't know if you know how the workshop works. But, but basically you have a teams of four or five people and you trade off being the gaffer, the, the cameraman, you know, whatever. And you like these different scenes. And, um, and Laszlo would come by and look at, look at the stuff. And, you know, and, and Laszlo was, my, you know, my, my hero for, for sure. You know, the Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces, yada-da, yada-da. But uh, he kept coming by and he'd look at my stuff. He'd go, yeah, good, good. And uh, so uh, I, one, one evening I was in, in the bar. I was walking by the bar and I saw Laszlo sitting there alone. 
And so I went in and sat down with him and, you know, asked if I could, you know, sit with him. And he goes, yeah. And he said, you know, well, he goes, you know how to lie. He goes, you should just do it. He, he, he said, shoot anything and everything, anything anyone offers you and and everything. Mm-hmm. Just get all the experience you can, no matter no matter what it is. And so cut to, you know, this dilemma of sex lies and videotape or, you know, operating for John. I think if I actually had really talked to John about it, he would have encouraged me not to operate for him and to go shoot sex lies and videotape. Yeah. But I had to make that decision on the phone with, with Sydney, which I did. As it turned out, you know, we had no idea. You know, say, we, we, shooting sex lies on videotape was was such a, a another interesting experience because it was I had shot two Canon films for the director that did uh, Radioactive Dreams. I, mm-hmm. I did a film called Dangerously Close and Down Twisted, and then based on that, um, and and another brilliant Japanese American cameraman, Japanese cameraman, Toimichi Kurita. He was talking to Stephen about shooting it, and uh, I don't know. I think he he felt uncomfortable about his his English at the time and going in and working with a local Baton Rouge uh, crew. So uh, he recommended me. I had met him somewhere, and I met Stephen and agreed to do that. I read the script, and you know it's one of those scripts when you read. You, you know, it's it was at the time it was kind of off. You know, yeah. you, it's definitely an independent film. There was only a million dollars you know, involved. And I mean, like at that time, so this is like late eighties, correct? Yes. So like at that time, the independent film world isn't, it, it could be argued that sex lies and videotape made the independent film world, what it became because it went to Sundance and then went on to make a lot of money. But up until then, even though there were independent films, there weren't like intensely personal independent films like that, that were really breaking through and, and, and finding mainstream success. Well, it definitely was a instrumental film in changing the types of films that were being made, I think. And I think the, the films became more introspective. Uh, between that film and we also had Ellen Curis on here who shot Swoon, Like right. I feel like that period of time sets off a movement in filmmaking that is still going to a degree worldwide and certainly in America, but really kind of powered a lot of like the smaller divisions of major studios and companies like October Films and Miramax and whatnot, all the way through probably 2008 or so before, you know, like the economy crashed and they closed all those divisions. Right. And I think the moving into digital helped crash that as far as, you know, the five to $25 million film oh, also, sure. because now those films are being made for 500,000 because no one, you know, yes, another story. But, but speaking of uh, sex lives and it being a success, I remember uh, shooting that last scene in the house and sitting on the front steps with Peter and Stephen, and and Stephen looked at me and said, you know, that was fun, that was an interesting film. And he said, it's too bad no one will ever see it. And uh, it's a terrible uh, thing. Well, and, and also and, also wrong, but. <laughs> but 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 wrong. But but I mean, you know, we, we had never seen it with dialogue. We were screening dailies with no sound, 
uh, we were playing, you know, Pink Floyd <laughs> and watching it. And correct me if I'm wrong, too, but I believe you told me that that was the movie where you began your tradition of finding a, a scene to stick your light meter in the background somewhere. And, and you've done it in, in several of your films. It was a thing. That well, you did. I did it for quite a while. Yes. Until until now, you know, I shoot a little more television and and I just move so fast I can't hide the light meter. And. And you on put top the histogram of that, in the yeah, background. yeah, really. And who uses a light meter beside me anymore? I go into the set, and people go, "What the hell is that?" And I go, "It's an antique, guys." You know, but yeah, you know, I, I also for Stephen, I shot uh, Kafka. Over that was my next. Well, and 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 before we even get into Kafka, was Soderbergh the first first time filmmaker that you had worked with? First time feature? He he done shorts and stuff. Yeah, but Stephen was probably the mo- one of the more accomplished filmmakers I had worked with too. Even though he was young and you know didn't have a lot of credits at the mm-hmm. time, but he he's incredibly smart. His I think his father worked at the University of Louisiana or Tulane University or something, and Stephen would would go in and and sneak the cameras out. And, oh wow! You know, you know he was he was. Uh, he, he's a, a very smart, accomplished guy. Obviously, look at his career. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I yeah. feel like he's made six movies while we've had this conversation. Probably has. Two of them on iPhones and two of them <laughs> in anamorphic, you know. <laughs> so so you go on to do Kafka, which I, I actually saw in the theater and uh, is a, a gorgeous black and white mixed with color. But it was like, you know, for a sophomore effort from an independent filmmaker, an extremely ambitious film how big of a leap was that for you oh it scared the hell out of me <laughs> are you kidding uh, first of all i call kodak and i and I, well at the time there was this uh this east german black and white stock i was looking for black and white stock and uh and i had shot sex lies on agfa film which had that you know grainy quality i was one of those guys that liked the quality of agfa film but anyway, so I, I call up Kodak. I say, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I've got to shoot this film. I've got to shoot it in, in, uh, in black and white. I, I need to talk to someone there that knows something about black and white. And they go, oh, yeah, great. Come over for dinner. Mike Morelli was there at the time. Wonderful, wonderful, you know, guy at, uh, at Kodak. So I go over there, and he invites all the engineers, you know, the technicians, you know, and sit around the table, have lunch, and... You know, no one's talking about black and white, and I finally say, "Well, you know, I've got to, I've got to shoot this thing in black and white. What can you tell me about the Plus X and the Triax stock, and can I still get it?" And they all kind of looked at each other, and they go, "Well, really, we don't, we don't really know anything about it. We just use it for sound now, you know." And and I go, "Oh, well, thanks for the lunch." But they said, "No, no, no. we'll set you up with a, a phone meeting with." I'm not going to mention his name, but he was a guy who won like three or four Academy Awards, of which most of them were for black and white film. Mm-hmm. And and he was absolutely my hero, you know. And so uh, Kodak calls me the next day and they, they go, uh, yeah, so-and-so, uh, we'll talk to you at this hour. So I called him and uh, I said, you know, Mr. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. You know, I, I, was, it was, I was trembling just talking to this guy. I said, I'm about to shoot a black and white film, and uh, I, I just, you know, need some pointers. 
And he said, kid, have you ever shot black and white film? I go, no, sir, I haven't. He goes, well, good luck and click. What? <laughs> and, and it was, you know, to me it sounded harsh at the time, but it was the best thing he could have ever done because, uh, because you can't really tell someone how to shoot black and white, you know? <laughs> you can't tell someone how to shoot color. You just have to go do it, you know, yeah. figure it out. And uh, <laughs> But anyway, as it turned out, started shooting the film uh it was very difficult because i wanted to process there at berendorf in, in prague but but the producers were a little worried about that because the revolution had just happened and it was kind of messy over there so we were we were sending stuff to uh technicolor in london and then it was coming back and we'd look at dailies and when we'd screen dailies i would go this looks like crap I should have remembered what David Myers told me with that damn lab. But the, <laughs> but I'd call the lab. I go, you know, th this looks like crap. You know, um, what's going on? They go, no, it looks great here. You're doing fine. And I'm going, really? I go, <laughs> I can hardly see anything, and it's it's it just looks muddy. It just looks like crap. So finally, I convinced them because I didn't have a lumens meter to read the screen. They sent me a, a meter. And uh, I, I read the reflective reading off the screen, and I was getting three, you know, lumens off the screen, and which and and, uh, and it sh should have been fourteen or fifteen. And so then I took the projector apart, and the reflector in the back behind the bulb had a crack in it that, that was like a half an inch wide all the way down. So, so. Don't, don't blame the lab, blame the projection. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and, and really, I talked to the projection. I said, what is this? He goes, oh, you know, they just don't, won't have the money or don't have the money to fix it. And I go. Was Soderbergh uh, freaking out? He wasn't freaking out so much as, as uh, Jeremy Irons was. Oh. And Jeremy Irons had just done... Um, that Klaus Van, Van Buehler. Yeah, yeah, Reversal of Fortune. Reversal of Fortune. Won the Oscar for it. Yeah, he did. But he didn't want to, you know, he he didn't want to come off as an old man. Yeah, you know? yeah. But But then again, Kafka was 41 years old and he was dying of tuberculosis. So sometimes when I lit him dramatically, he saw the uh, the image on the screen with no image. Oh, no. He, he, he thought I was pushing it a little bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so... But well, as it turned out, it were, you know it all worked out. No, but it's, it's a beautiful film. Now, I know that you can't answer this. Really, only Steven Soderbergh can answer this. But I believe he worked with three DPs and then started shooting all of his own stuff. Did, was he? Did you feel like he was someone who was working towards being his own cinematographer at the time? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think he worked with four oh. uh, different DPs. And I think he did two films with each of them, if I'm not mistaken. I could be mistaken. Yeah, but, but you know, Stephen not only is accomplished in just about everything that he does, uh, but uh, he likes to have control. And also, I think that he felt... At one time, he, he, he told me that when he looks through the camera, he kind of... He feels it more than when he's standing beside the camera and, and looking at it. That's fair. Yeah. But I also think anyone who is a cameraman or a cinematographer, it's really a lot of fun to shoot, you know? And it's the most fun on the set. I mean, it's stressful, you know, a lot of times, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, you're working all the time, constantly. It's not like... Okay, the cameraman's going to light. I'm the director. I've got to go back and sit in the chair and wait for, you know, 
25 minutes while he does the next setup. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, no, of course of course not. <laughs> but, but, you know, yeah. I have empathy for you guys, you know, and sometimes um, envy because, you know, God, would I like to take a break. <laughs> but uh, Well, the question I always want to ask those people, though, is like if you're operating the camera, I can understand if you like had a really good gaffer and you could light and you had a good operator who could operate and you were kind of in video village. And I don't know. I don't know if you can really call yourself the cinematographer at that point. But if you're, if you're having everybody else kind of do your job. But that being said, operating the camera and directing it like I don't know how you watch for composition and performance at the same time. I feel like you get so wrapped up in performance, you wouldn't notice the boom come into the shot or you'd get so focused on composition that you would not notice whether the actors were in the scene or not. I think I think it's very difficult to do that uh, personally. Yes. So your your career kind of keeps going, and and you you end up working for Robert Altman on Shortcuts, which I I'd love to talk about as well. But also like I uh, when when we look at your filmography, it's like you kind of move into doing second unit on enormous giant movies like The Perfect Storm and stuff like that mm-hmm. as, as it goes. What was guiding your career choices? Was it just you were you were going for the jobs that were most intriguing to you? Were you taking a break from shooting f- from being first unit DP on on? I mean, like obviously Shortcuts isn't a low budget movie, but it wasn't you know a a, a giant tentpole of that year. What was the guiding principle of of what of the perfect storm? No, just of of like how you were kind of how you were guiding your career at that point. First of all, it's very difficult for me to say no to John Seal and John shot you know the Got perfect it. storm and, that makes sense. and plus it was an opportunity to work on a really big film. And I've kind of kept my career in, in, you know, the low budget or medium to low budget realm. But John called me up on The Perfect Storm. He says, Walt, would you hop on this boat in Gloucester? I'm doing this film called The Perfect Storm. And I had just shot something called uh, with Alan Rickman called Dark Harbor Mm -hmm. in Maine. And ironically... I was reading the the last night of the sh- after we finished shooting. I was reading the perfect storm as a nor'easter came in, flooded the harbor in uh, not Camden. What is the what is the uh, Rockland? Anyway, this huge storm comes in. It floods the first floor of the hotel. We all have to move up. I'm reading the perfect storm, thinking, God, this is going to be a great movie. Someone's got to get this going. And literally, it was like three weeks later that John called me and said, Walt, do you want to hop on this fishing boat and shoot some stuff? And, and you know, you can ride it down the coast and through the Panama Canal and back up. And and I said, John, you know, you don't have to call me to ask me a question like that. Of course, <laughs> I'm in. Well, as it turned out, they decided not to do that, you know, and I had committed to the to the thing. And so I went and I shot about uh, four weeks of aerials there in Gloucester. And then we shot a lot of second unit, in, including waiting for the tail end of Hurricane Floyd to come up in through there. And then we came back here to Warner Brothers and shot on the in the tank on the stage here. Oh, wow. And uh, it was it, for me. Even though it's not something that I would normally go after, I learned a lot. And sometimes I felt more like a traffic cop, though, in, in, because we had four techno cranes and, and like seven ridders and three wave machines. And, you know, they, had, they built a, a replica of this 73-foot boat and mm-hmm. had to cut it into three pieces to get it in the stage and then weld it back together on top of the gimbal and the oh, thing. Oh, wow. It, it, technically, there were so many things going on. It, it, was, it was fascinating to me. 
So like yeah. when you get to a point where you're making a film like of a with a budget like that and so many resources, I mean, it sounds like you're saying it kind of slowed down the process a little bit because there were so many moving parts or uh, or or was like I'm always wondering when people uh, have shot these ginormous movies like superhero movies and stuff like that. Where does the art come in and where does it feel like middle management? You know, it it felt more like middle management i hate yeah. to say it and um it was just because it was it was it was so big and plus i was second unit you know it, everything was storyboarded uh, i was base in in some evenings if if i got off five seconds of usable footage which you know for me is you know in my career yeah you and it, me were doing eight pages a day <laughs> well right and i've done a series since then yeah. with, for two years which averaged ten and a half pages a day Whoa. And that was all on location, um, on different locations. I one day that was legit. Yeah, it, it was so big that that for me it kind of moved me out of the feeling that I'm making a film and more into. I don't want to sound disingenuous because I really loved the experience and I loved mm-hmm. a lot. But but it was more like making a product. You know, uh, it was a huge factory that we had going on. Yeah, there. yeah. I don't think there's I don't think that there's anything wrong with saying it. It's you yeah. know it's it's a it's a lot of stuff to yeah. capture. And I and I'm very I'm very hands on on everything. You know I like to touch everything, and and it was just impossible. It was just too big. You know. Yeah. And and, and inappropriate actually, because um, <laughs> it was it was very dangerous. Oh really? Know? Yeah, incredibly dangerous. A gimbal with a seventy three foot boat and and five foot chop. You know and. 10,000 gallon dump tanks in the ceiling, you know, once all that stuff cranked up, you couldn't hear a thing and you, you got everything going and, and it was, it was really difficult to stop it. And when we're up in a, the second unit director and I are up in a booth, you know, on the side of the stage, trying to watch everything and coordinate everything. I mean, I mean, you know, again, we had four techno cranes going. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, it was, it was. Yeah, sometimes I walk on a set that I'm unfamiliar with. Like um, my wife worked on a, on a reality show for a while, and I walked on, and it's like I don't even understand what I'm looking at. It's so it's so busy, and I imagine that you know when you're talking about four techno cranes and the dump tank and Ritter fans and all that stuff, like it just sounds like uh, just so so much uh, to uh, to wrangle. Um, I, I realized I, right, and and all that stuff is going. You crank all that stuff up. To get a small shot of a guy's, you know, boot caught in a, a an animatronic <laughs> oh, shark's mouth, you know. Oh man! And yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. That's a lot. Um, I realized that we jumped over one of the things I really wanted to talk about in regards to your career, which is your uh, working relationship with Alan Moyle. For, you know, going back to Pump Up the Volume, or actually, you worked together before Pump Up the Volume, correct? No, Pump was the first, and I did Empire Records with him. Okay, I had them flipped in my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny how I got that job because that was right after, uh, kind of right in the Sex Lives era. And uh, I, I called my agents because they don't call me. <laughs> I called my agents and uh, I said, well, you know, what's going on? They said, well, nothing's going on right now. I said, well, you know, just give me something to read. Uh, so I went down to their office and looked through scripts and I saw this pump up the volume and I grabbed the script. And uh, I'm, I'm reading it, and I'm, God, this is really interesting, you know, the rebellious kid, you yeah. know, and the, kind of a, a fish out of the water in this environment that he's in. And, and 
how come I, I couldn't get a meeting for this, you know? And uh, they said, oh, no, they've already hired someone when I call the agents. And so I, I, the, the darn script is sitting on my dining room table. And I look at it, and in pencil, there's a little phone number that looks like it's been half erased. And I called the phone number, and uh, it was Alan. I go, Alan, this is Walt Lloyd. You don't know me, but I just wanted to tell you, you know, I just read the script. I think this is going to be a great film. Good luck with it. He goes, Walt Lloyd. He goes, uh, God, it's too bad you weren't available for it. And I go, what do you mean I wasn't available? I was available for this. I go, I, I love it. And so ended up through a couple of things that I, I shot the film for him. And you two have created not just a collaboration, but you two are really good friends, too, based on, on uh, having worked on that, correct? Well, I had dinner with him last night, if that counts. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been... Uh, Lothi's 30-something years yeah, later. Yeah, 30, 30 years later. Yeah, Alan is is a very unique individual, just a really wonderful guy. So, like, what is it about your collaboration with him? Because I feel like he's probably the director you've collaborated with the most, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what is it about the collaboration with him that, what, what is it that clicks the most for the two of you? I, I think that Alan is a little bit like me. You know, I think we both feel like we're very, very lucky. And sometimes we find ourselves in a position where I don't, I don't even know how to put it. You know, the, the word I used before with you, I, I felt sometimes like I'm a charlatan because I don't have, you know, uh, training. I, I didn't go to film school. I didn't go to AFI. I don't have, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't, I didn't become enamored with film when I was four years old walking down, you know, Wilshire Boulevard. <laughs> you know, it all came to me late in life. And, and I've, I've had a few very lucky breaks and, and I love the process. I absolutely love the process. But I feel like I talk to so many people that get involved with film and they've loved film their whole lives. And, I, you know, maybe I've never really analyzed this, Ben. You know, That's why I, we're uh, here. That's why we're yeah. here. <laughs> Is there a psychologist in the house? But in a way, I feel like Alan and I are very much the same, you know, like that. And I don't really want to speak you know, for him. But I think Alan is in, an incredibly talented man. And I, I sometimes think he doesn't appreciate how talented he is. Um, when, when you're working together, what is the collaboration like? Because obviously you guys really clicked. He reminded me last night that we only had one disagreement in really? two films. Yes. Which I've done two films with you. I did two films with Soderbergh. <laughs> Did, I, did I, we only have one? Did we have any disagreements? I don't yet? know that we did. Yeah. I don't. I don't know that we had any disagreements. Yeah. Uh, there's not time for disagreements when you're no, making a movie in 15 days. No. It's kind of well, be like. Well, pump of the volume wasn't much longer, and and neither was uh, Empire, but uh, they were 30 day shoots, I think. But uh, if you're asking what the process is, I'm incredibly flexible and fluid. Mm -hmm. And and I don't have one process. I feel like a, a director of photography's job or a cinematographer's job is basically to learn the language of the director and to interpret that. Mm -hmm. But also, I feel like a cinematographer's job is to become intimate with the script and to try to also interject how it affects you back to the director. You know, it's, it's a give and take. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and for some reason, that, that collaboration just worked with Alan and I very well. 
he's just very easy to work with, but very unconventional to work with. Yeah, I mean, his films are uh, quirky is a reductive way to describe them, but they are idiosyncratic, you know, and but pump up the volume. Like, you know, I know people who, you know, for whom that was like their their rebellion movie. That was their easy rider. Well, right. And, you know, um, a couple of years ago, they screened Empire Records at uh, the Hollywood you know, cemetery here. Oh, cool. Did you go? Yeah. Well, yes, Alan and I went together, as a matter of fact, with his wife and a bunch of friends of ours. And I was shocked. I was shocked, number one, because I knew that there was this generation, you know, that, that's a few years younger than I am, that that liked Empire Records. I didn't know that it was going to be similar to the Rocky Horror Show. There were kids that would come in together, and they all had the, the outfits on of the cast yeah, and they knew the, the dialogue from the beginning to the end. And, and Alan and I are sitting in the middle of this, you know, on somebody's grave watching, watching. Oh, you're the, not actually sitting the, on a grave. Uh, well, <laughs> but, uh, I was uh, sitting on uh, Mel Blanc's uh, grave. Yeah. Zone. <laughs> anyway, it, it was, it was, incredibly moving to yeah. be there incredibly moving well, to, I mean, to see I, how how much this generation uh embrace that film but when i think about some of the movies that you've made sex lies and videotape being a big one and um pump up the volume i feel like these are movies that really are kind of iconic for really for my generation and they really do mean a lot to people and i feel like you know a lot of the big blockbustery kind of stuff Comes and goes. And, you know, like, look, I'm not trying to take away from blockbuster movies. I'm sure that Thor Ragnarok means the world to lots of people. And I'm not trying to say it's not a great movie. But I feel like these movies, like, really touch people's hearts and kind of give them purpose in in a way that a lot of movies. And it, it came at a time that I think we're ripe for right now, honestly, where so much of the entertainment was kind of this corporate created, you know, and the 80s are kind of known for a kind of a blockbuster mentality and then undermining it in the late 80s, early 90s are, th- are these kinds of movies that you're working on that you're making. And I would also put shortcuts into that group, you know, because Robert Altman had kind of a renaissance starting with the player and then going through shortcuts. Right. No, I, I totally agree with you. And I think I think that uh, we're sorely missing something, not having those kind of films around yeah. today. Although I, I will say in the past week, I saw two films that were very unique and very inspiring. What were they? Jojo Rabbit and, oh and God, Parasite. I saw both. <laughs> my wife and I went to saw Parasite. But yeah, we actually interviewed uh, Mihai who shot. Oh, uh, did who you shot it? Yeah, yeah. No, fantastic. Both both really unique, totally unexpected. I the first ten minutes of Jojo Rabbit, I didn't know what to think, and yeah. thank God, you know, I loved I it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, well, I feel like those movies don't go away. Like as you know, I'm a giant horror fan, but I feel like yeah. horror movies come and go when there isn't a certain anxiety hanging in the culture, yeah. and it doesn't matter that it's a that it's a masterpiece sometimes they're just kind of overlooked by the greater culture and then when culture's anxiety gets high those movies you know like uh, get out being the first or maybe not the first but a big one of the current wave that we're in um and i feel like indie film or or kind of independent voices in art is is another place when the audience is more receptive to it because you know like i think jojo rabbit and Parasite are both masterpieces, and they're both beloved by by film lovers. I'm waiting to see one of them break out and become like a, you know a phenomenon. But anyway, I'm not here to talk about Jojo Rabbit necessarily, or uh, well, no, not necessarily. But both of those films, I thought, 
you, you know, I, I think one of the problems with corporate films is the fact that the insistence of uh, exposition mm-hmm. by dialogue. And I, I think that Parasite is a perfect example oh of, of making a film visually and letting the visuals tell the story without having to verbally exhibit everything or expose everything. Yeah, yeah. And and so that, that's why I mentioned those. Uh, Amelie, another really great film favorite of mine, yeah. was was very much the same or had very much the same effect on me. Uh, kind of jumping back into that period of time, though, uh, what what brought you to Shortcuts and uh, and and working with Robert Altman, who had made one of the films, Mash, that had kind of set you on the on the path of being a filmmaker yourself. Robert, uh, how did I meet him? Well, Is, how did uh, how did you end up on that film? I actually got introduced to him. I originally through his son Bobby, who is a DP now. A, a yeah, really yeah, we, we've actually spoken to Bobby about possibly yeah. coming on. He, but, but Bobby, a, you introduced me to Bobby because you brought him on as a camera operator yeah. on Alien Raiders, and I was like, right. holy fuck, we have an Altman <laughs> operating yeah. the camera. I've known Bobby since he was. 18 years. I drove across the country with Bobby when he was like 18. We started in Denver and drove across. And oh wow! Yeah, no, he, um, he's he's just an amazing guy. But anyway, I think that he uh, originally suggested me to Robert, and uh, I was lucky enough to get the job. And you know, Shortcuts was an interesting film because it was based on Raymond Carver novels, yeah. which all take place in a completely different environment. They take place in the Seattle, you know, rainy, wet. Mm-hmm. But he said it all in L.A. He said it all in L.A. And so, you know, then the challenge became, how do you make this work here? And, and you know, these characters, I, I felt in reading it, I, I, I felt like they were lacking soul, you know. And, and there was something sometimes almost one-dimensional about these characters. And the environment was soulless to me. And in order to to do something unique with that film, what I did was uh, I desaturated it and I used a light flex to do that, which mm-hmm. which uh, you know was this piece of equipment which I I, I don't even know if they're around anymore. Uh, but uh, it's it's basically flashing the film to to lower the contrast, but doing it externally, you know, flashing light in back in through the lens. And I feel like, I mean, I would, I would never say, oh, Shortcuts, great cinematography. What I would say was Shortcuts, I feel like the look honors the script, you know, the, the tone. Yeah. And, and that's what I try, that's what I try to do. I don't, I, I don't, I never look at a, at a script and say, oh, well, this should feel, you know, like such and such a film. I feel like every script is unique. So when you're when you're kind of looking at a film and kind of ideating, and I know that I know this from our experience. I was furiously uh, studying every frame of John Carpenter's The Thing. But when you're doing that, like, where do you pull inspiration from? Is it mostly from the director? Is it from your imagination? Do you look at still photographs or paintings or still photographs a lot? I mean, on Kafka, it was uh, it was an illustrator that did a lot of posters named Rachinko, mm-hmm. but it was mostly stills. Uh, Robert Frank has been a big influence, you know, or was a big influence on me. But uh, and, and when yeah. I think about shortcuts too, like Robert Altman had a look. Like, there's not a lot of filmmakers out there 
you know, maybe David Lynch's one, but there's not a lot of filmmakers out there where it's like you look at two seconds of the movie and you're like, that's Robert Altman. You can tell a Robert Altman movie very quickly. Well, you can because of his particular style. Exactly. And, and you know, like, <laughs> I just, I just, lo- I love Robert Altman uh, to death, but, but he has this early 70s, you know, uh, zoom lens style. Yeah. And very unconventional. It's all about the actors with Robert. And, you know, as a cameraman, you try to get in what you can. But the way he liked to shoot was basically on a jib arm and, uh, you know, on a, on a lens that could, you know, 25 to 250 lens yeah. in the corner. And, and you run the scene about, you know, if there's six actors in the scene, you run it seven times and you track an actor, you know, a different actor each time, you know. And so sometimes hand off in the middle. And so sometimes that was a little frustrating for me, I, I will admit, because I, I wanted to polish it a little more. Yeah. But but that was his style. And as Robert told me one day, he said, I've been doing it like this for 30 years. Why should I change? And, you know, it's hard to argue with that, you know. Well, uh, and, and I'm, I'm always uh, interested, like, when, when someone's stepping into somebody else's style. And again, like, you know, it's it's such, such an identifiable style that Robert Altman has. Is it freeing to walk in and know, like, uh, not again, not to, not to dwell on Alien Raiders, but when you and I were working together, I feel like, I relied on you a lot to make sure that I walked out of every scene with enough coverage. And I would literally have, I had nightmares after the shoot was over that we had forgotten to get stuff that you had gotten (laughs) because, you know, you knew we were not leaving the scene without enough to cut, to cut together. But with somebody like Robert Altman, I feel like he's got at, especially at that point in his career, he's got, he's got a huge history. He's got a mastery of a very, very, very specific look. And, and he, in a very specific way, he was going to cut it. So he knew exactly what he wanted and he knew when he had it. But but he also, he would throw things out like uh, I, at the bakery when La Love It was in the bakery. You know, we, were, we picked uh, Annie McDowell up in the, uh, in the parking lot and, and carried her through and through the door and whatever. And, and I think Robert, in a way, would throw things out and, and see what the reaction was. And he goes, and I want to go through the door and go in. And, you know, it was, it was like a 12-stop pull, you know, yeah. to get in there. And I do uh, wonder about the camera assistance on something where, you know, you're going from 75 to 250 or whatever you said. You know, like you're, oh, you're zooming in like crazy. You're, you're pulling focus. You're racking. You're changing the aperture like you're having to. There's a lot of lens work happening. There's a lot of lens work happening, but the uh, operator was changing the focal length of the lens. So the focus puller was. was Oh, really? Yeah. You didn't have one person on each one of those tasks. No, I I actually let N operated that film because he wanted me to operate it. Oh, wow. And, and so, like I said, it was on the jib arm the whole time. He actually brought in a masseuse at the beginning of the show. He says, your back's going to go because, you know, you've been over this thing going up yeah. and down. And he said, uh, whenever you need a masseuse, there's a masseuse here. Well, great. You know, I'm a cameraman, you know. <laughs> Do you know how many times I, I got a massage? Yeah. Not once. But everyone else on that, on that shoot did. Yeah, you know, one of those one of those 45-minute stretches when you're yeah, not doing anything. Yeah, right. Uh, I was operating in like, but But I think that he would throw challenges out just to see how far you would push push it. And in those instances, I always tried to, to, to push it, you know. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, I don't feel like that that is an illustration of like the most beautiful work I've ever done. But I do think that the work really served the script. 
You know? Well, and I mean, like, ultimately, that's that's the important part. That's the important part for me. Yes. And you, yeah, I mean, it, it's such a Robert Altman movie. It's it like I, I feel like just being able to step into that into that world and being able to, you know, create something with somebody like Robert Altman's got to be, you know, pretty well, amazing. absolutely. And, and and the fact that, uh, you know, just for me working with that cast, I mean, oh, yeah. You know, Andy McDowell again. All of those know, people you know. at the top of their game at, yeah. that, at that point in time, yeah. too. Yeah. Were, Huey Lewis. <laughs> Huey Lewis. Yeah. Lyle Lovett. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Rocket. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the cast and that, uh, we could sit here and talk for an hour about, you know, how many people were in that film. Well, speaking of which, I feel like we've already been going for over an hour and I feel like we could do a part two of this very easily. Um, before we wrap up, do you have an online uh, like website or something if people want to see your work? Yeah, waltloyd.com. Uh, how clever. Hey? That, uh, easy it, to remember. It's a it's a relatively uh, uh, old reel on that. And uh, I every, think, every DP we ever get in here has like, yeah, here's my website. I haven't updated it in five years. Yeah. Well, that is at least five years. It's totally fair. No, well, yeah. um, it, it's 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 great to see you and great great to talk to you after. It's really a good seeing you. Again. And um and I really feel like we should bring you in for a part two just because you know again I want to because talk about, I'm so verbose. And I want to talk about your TV work. I want to talk. I, I feel like I, I we we didn't even talk about uh, Jiho Lee's film The Air I Breathe. Oh or, yeah, you know, a great so, experience and a yeah. great guy, Jiho. Um, Bob DeRosa. Bob DeRosa, who is the person who actually introduced us to each other. Yeah, and yeah. Bob and I do a, a horror comedy web series together. So, Oh, do you? Yeah, oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll show fantastic. it to you. Fantastic. Yeah, no, in, in television, because for the reasons, oh, here I go, you know, you want to wrap this up and I keep talking. Do it. But because the reason that, that sometimes I'm frustrated with or working on these huge films is the reason I love television. Because you have to, you have to move. You have to get the work out. And I like, I you know, I don't like sitting around. I don't like waiting. I, I one of the biggest joys, you know, the process is the, is what I love about making films. And and I love walking onto a, a, a television shoot in the morning and you see a bunch of you know guys sitting around eating burritos and you know <laughs> and there's chaos. You know, they're unloading trucks. There's you know, the, the parking lot is just a mess. And I feel really accomplished when I can funnel all that down into two minutes of, you know, something that makes sense at the end of the day. Yeah. It's just such a gratifying feeling of being a craftsman mm-hmm. in a way and creating something tangible out of chaos. <laughs> <laughs> well, Walt, thank you so much. This is so much fun. Yeah, this is really, really a lot of fun for me. And thank you guys for having me. I'm sorry it took so long to get get in here. Well, and that was Walt Lloyd. Thank you so much for being on here, Walt. I can't wait to see you again. Yeah, that was great. Hey, Ben, uh, guess what? What? Bill paying time. Yay. Yay. All right, we're paying the bills. Hey, uh, we got to thank our fantastic sponsor, Aperture. Aperture, uh, maker of high-quality LED lights for film and video folk out there have something there's literally one sitting right in front of me a, a little aperture light that uh that you you showed me you, you had you'd been I kind of tinkering it. with a yes, little bit I, I and uh, yeah. and uh, i know it's not the one you're about to talk about but man it's amazing yeah that that this one's cool this other one is cool too and i'm thinking about maybe doing a little hacking on this one too but uh but that's a, that's a story for another time it's called the amaran amaran sort of a sub brand of aperture it is made by aperture but their line they call amaran which is a m 
A-R-A-N. And uh, they call this particular product the flagship, which is the Tri-8. The Tri-8 packs in 888 high CRI, which means high color accuracy, LED lights into an 11-inch panel. Whoa. Yeah. So it's a lot of... LEDs. A lot of other LED uh, manufacturers out there, they don't have anywhere near that number. And uh, that means the Tri-8 is capable of outputting a tremendous amount of light. And at short distances, it's equivalent to like a, a 600 watt light, but it doesn't use anywhere near 600 watts. So it's a little panel light. It's pretty interesting. 95 CRI. It's a narrow beam angle at only 25 degrees, hmm. but it includes a uh, rather inexpensive softbox. It's super lightweight. And if you just need uh, a basic sort of ready to go kit that can be powered by batteries and it runs on some little DV batteries or can plug into the wall and has a high quality CRI with a softbox, it's hard to beat the Amaran Tri 8. Is there a price for it? It is. It's, I want to say, you know, it fluctuates a little bit, but I think it's around $450 or something like that. But metal construction, at least a uh, partial metal construction and high quality. And it is it is bicolor, uh, but it goes beyond sort of the typical bicolor of just saying that, like, oh, we've got a, a daylight balance and a, a incandescent sort of tungsten balance. It goes a little bit beyond that. You can go down as far as 2300 Kelvin. I'm sorry, I don't mean to get too technical here, but that just basically means it gets warmer. So you can have a warmer light, sort of a candlelight look at uh, 2300 Kelvin. It can get cooler than like typical daylight at 6800 Kelvin. So it's got a really nice range to, to find nice. what you're looking for. So yeah, uh, definitely worth taking a look at. It definitely sort of has the an appearance that feels like something a little bit more consumery. And, and frankly, if you're looking at a $450 light, you are looking for something that's a little bit more consumery, but uh, you can get incredible results I'm on gonna this. I'm going to go with prosumery. Prosumery, sure, that's fair. Like it's good for like a small interview kind of package. Like that's exactly right. And there's a lot of people out there looking for that. And it comes with a remote control. So uh, you can actually wirelessly turn this thing on and off, Whoa. which uh, it'll work up to 150 meters. And for someone who is a one man band type of, yeah, I know meters. Are, we, well, in, okay, are four, we in England? Uh, that's what they spent. 450 feet then we'll put it Thank that you. way. So, so for everyone out there not familiar with metric, yeah, 450 feet. So you can set something up if you're like a YouTuber, one man band sort of thing. You can click, turn it on and off, and you don't have to go run over the light and flip the switch. Pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. All right. So, uh, yeah, definitely take a look at the Tri-8. Of course, available at Hot Rod Cameras. We'll put a link in the show notes if you would like to pick up one of these things or come in and play with it and, or compare it to one of the other cool aperture lights. Here's what I would suggest uh, listeners do if they if they are in the metro Los Angeles area, if they're in the Los Angeles Metroplex, come on in, play with the light, ask to speak with Ilya, demand a T-shirt. Whoa. Because you have new T-shirts and, and you gave me one and we, it's quite awesome. We do. We also have hats. Oh. <gasps> You could you could possibly demand a hat, but if you if you're hearing the sound of my voice, come in, play with the light, ask to speak with Ilya, demand a T-shirt. You will not be the only person who has done this. There has been several people who have come in who have gotten their swag, have gotten their hats and T-shirts. You definitely they, should. They didn't even have to buy anything. A couple of them did, and it was nice. We hung out and chatted about the podcast. It was great. And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, it is short end time. Woot. So my pet obsession for this week is uh, we, we had a guest on uh, who, who, the interview has not been published yet. So I'm not going to even mention the name of the guest because it's it's cool. It'll, it'll come up. But he was someone who I would say on on a scale of zero to extraordinarily technical is very technical person and really into the apps. 
And he and I talked about, and we talked about it on the show. We talked about uh, shot designer, which is my favorite kind of go-to. Uh, I won't call it pre-visualization because it's not really pre-visualization, but it's just kind of a preparing. It's communicating to the crew where the cameras and actors and stuff are more than likely going to go in, in my head before we show up. And it's made by a company called Hollywood Camera Work. Camera Work being two separate words. I think that that is a weak name for your company. However, uh, Shot Designer is amazing. And a year or so ago, they released a thing called Causality, which is screenwriting software. And it's like, okay, so screenwriting software, who gives a shit? Because honestly, a lot of people are happy with whatever they're using. Uh, I was a final draft person for a long time. And then when uh, Bob DeRosa and I wrote Video Palace, I switched over to Fade In, which is what he was using. I love Fade In. It's great screenwriting software. But Causality is kind of a story building software. And it's not like a few years ago, there was a thing that's probably still around called Dramatica that kind of holds your hand a lot while you write the screenplay and kind of asks you a lot of questions and is sort of guiding you. It's kind of taking you down a pathway to create, I won't say a formulaic script, but a script that uh, adheres to rules that the people who created that software believe that it needs to, to adhere to. Causality, they just released a new version two of it and uh, I downloaded it and was kind of dicking around with it a little bit. And it's first of all, it's it's got uh, a subscription model. You can you can buy it outright, I think, for like two hundred and fifty or two hundred and eighty dollars or you can subscribe to it for like five something a month, which is kind of what I'm doing so that I can see if it works. And I'm going to kind of take it through the paces. I have a, a, a script idea that I'm that I'm working on. But the idea of causality is to basically put all of the writing tools that people would physicalize on like cork boards or whatever into a virtual space that can then connect to the story uh, beats or actual scenes or parts of scenes or you know kind of help you sculpt the character arc like the the software is basically designed to think like (laughs) to, to help you to encourage you to think more like a writer but it's not Again, I, I wouldn't confuse it with something like Dramatica. I'm not crapping on Dramatica. I know it helped a lot of people write screenplays. But I feel like this is is sort of giving you like interesting nonlinear editing tools almost. You, you've mentioned it on the show here before. So I think it was before you actually tried it, though. So you're giving a, a wholehearted endorsement then. Well, I would say it's not that I'm not giving it a wholehearted endorsement. It's that I'm kind of mid dicking around with. Like I'm mm-hmm. seeing I'm kind of kicking the tires on it and seeing what it can do. Like I want to see I want to see AI. But it's not AI. It's not really AI. It's but mo- it's helping you be a better. I mean, think if you put a nonlinear editing system. So you put Premiere or Avid into your writing software, so you could like move chunks around, and then it would show you the things that are broken as soon as you move things, or you know, like it basically helps you lay out the storyline. It's a way. index cards. It's all of those things. I mean, to, to call it index cards is somewhat reductive. But it's it's those kinds of things all kind of built into a software. So whereas Fade In, which again is a wonderful software and I love using it and it does it even has an index card kind of function. Uh, this goes way more deep into story construction. So it's basically software that helps you construct the story. But again, it's not telling you how to construct the story, hmm. if that makes sense. How much did it set you back? 
I, like I said, it's like five bucks a month. It's under six bucks a month, and I'm gonna just cancel try. anytime. Uh, yes, and you can. I'm just giving it a shot. All right, and, cool. And, and as a giant, I look forward to hearing your your, <laughs> your final uh, endorsement or or lack thereof. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll come back with a with a report on it. And yeah, I mean, as as a fan of um of shot designer, and one of the things like uh in in Hollywood Camera Works uh, Universe, they sent out a software, uh, not a software update. They sent out an email update, kind of saying what they're doing, and they've been talking about taking shot designer and making it work in 3d and i'm like please don't break shot designer it's so perfect the way it is Mm. however i know that part of the plan is to integrate shot designer into the screenwriting software Mm -hmm. so that you can kind of seamlessly build your scenes visually while you're writing them so you're you're making a storyboard almost while you're writing the script well yes i guess so yeah i mean i'm interested to see how they come up with with the 3d because the only 3d previs software that i've ever used that's like consumer available to consumers is frameforge 3d studio pro and it is very good but it's also extraordinarily time consuming and i think that when you're directing what you don't need to do is like sit around and discuss the color of the wall in your 3d model that you're building so that you can set up your shots you just kind of want to be like i want this i want there's a person here they're smiling moving on you don't want to like you don't want to think about it and what i love about shot designer is it's all overheads so it's like room here door here person here person here camera here couch there camera moves this way camera moves that way and it's so basic and simple that you kind of can't get lost in it. And the problem with Frameforge is that you could just get completely lost in it because it is full on previs. And uh, and I'm hoping that Shot Designer doesn't go down the path of becoming uh, a, a Byzantine time waster. Byzantine uh. time waster. That that's uh, that's a, that's those are harsh words, <laughs> but I stand by it. <laughs> All right, my short end plays off a little bit of what we talked about in the uh, close focus today. I'm sort of been obsessed and fascinated lately with the apparent disconnect between uh, U.S. movies and how they are doing overseas and vice versa. Like, for example, um, there are some American movies which are complete bombs here or considered bombs or maybe do mediocre, but then have, go on to do incredible, incredible business overseas. And then vice versa, movies that are that are done overseas, which are uh, also maybe uh, mediocrely popular or incredibly popular, but then come to the U.S. and then do nothing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like some of that can be chalked up to cultural differences or marketing or this, that and the other. But like Star Wars, we can mostly agree is a worldwide phenomenon and does incredibly well all over the world. It debuted at number three this week in China. Uh, the winner was a movie called Ip Man 4. Which so I've heard very good things about. I've heard good things about it too, about yeah. the whole series. But regardless, the fourth the fourth Ip Man in a martial arts series completely destroyed the latest Star Wars, which made it in at, at number three. And there's another movie in between. I just watched a Japanese animated movie called Your Name. It was the number one highest grossing movie in Japan for 2016. I think it just made a blip here, but to give you a, like a point of reference, uh, it more than doubled the box office of The Force Awakens. Whoa. So so there, it was a, it's a huge, huge movie, and I, I get it. I, I, I saw it. My, my wife will not go anywhere near it. Anything that is uh, Japanese animated, she's she, it's like her kryptonite. She's not going to watch it, Whoa. but I, but I watched it and I understand why, at least on some levels, it was, it was very successful. And I believe that it probably would do okay here as well. But then it made me start thinking about like, well, what other movies completely, uh, completely hit overseas, but then here did nothing. And a really good example is Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Now, granted it was $241 million in the U S 
but in the rest of the world it went on to do like 800 million dollars yeah. so it's like four times as popular and there, there's a, a bunch of other movies like that too golden compass which did in- incredibly well didn't I, uh pacific rim kind of like underperform i don't think it bombed it did. But oh under- no 100 million here but 300 million in the rest of the world which is and, why, why we got a second one and it's interesting too like when you go into certain countries where the movies then are, are renamed they have different they have different endings there's all kinds oh, of test countries are renamed i'm like no different sorry today <laughs> if i said that that was an error the movies are renamed and mm-hmm. there's different endings sometimes tacked on but it makes me think that we are uh perhaps more different than alike in uh in in some of these other places in that we really do have different feelings about what makes for a good movie what makes for light entertainment well, if anyone what makes has for ever thought seen, provoking has seen any bollywood films oh yeah and there bollywood is bigger business often than american films because there's so many people in india and uh this is what i was told i hope i'm not incorrect is that there are so many different dialects in india so they'll make the movie like three times while they're making you know they'll do it multiple times um, yes, I worked on a movie where they did that. Hey, we're going to do the Punjabi version now. Yeah. Now we're going to do the Hindi version. And it was they, they yeah. were and actors who did not know exactly what they were saying. They were reading phonetically from scripts. Oh, wow. Uh, when when I was a projectionist a long time ago in Orlando, you know, not, not a city known for its Indian population. There was an Indian company that would rent out the theater that I worked at mm. and they would bring in Indian movies, not subtitled. Mm. And uh, I would sit up there in the booth. I mean, it was an 11 plex, so I couldn't just sit there and watch all of them because I had to keep, you know, 10 other projectors running. But I would watch a lot of it. The movies were all like <laughs> way, way longer than American movies. They were like north of three hours. A wow. lot of them were like they were most of them were musicals. A lot of them were extraordinarily religious. And it was the first time that I ever note, took a special note like, OK, because the foreign films that I'm used to seeing are like from Europe basically that's right occasionally like uh i would at that time have seen a hong kong movie or something you know a jackie chan movie sure sure but i was not used to seeing a movie that was like made for a culture that i am absolutely not a part of yeah uh and there's a lot of that out there and there's a lot of uh, regional stuff that crosses over and some of it that doesn't i think it's really interesting that the u.s exports so much culture and so many movies and that when you do see essentially American versions of movies that that come back to us that are just maybe slightly more regionalized. But then there is the whole other variety of things that might be impenetrable to a to an American audience. Well, and I have a theory and maybe some somebody could tell me if this is true or not. But a lot of the biggest budget movies coming out of America, I often feel like the dialogue is kind of flat and on the nose. And I think it's because they're writing it in a way that it can export anywhere and so it'll make just as much sense in, in English as it will in Farsi, as it will in Chinese, as it will in Italian. And the cultural like cultural nuances that we build our stuff out of won't it, it's not a quirky little independent film that's really mostly meant for American audiences where everyone watching it is kind of in on the joke because they're part of the same culture. It's got to export to like literally everywhere at the same time. And it's one of the things that I feel like if you look at uh the MCU movies, all those Marvel movies, I feel like they did it really well because they figured out ways to have kind of on the nose dialogue, but then they would have actors like Robert Downey Jr. or or Scarlett Johansson or whatever, who could kind of add a little nuance in their performance of, of the on the line dialogue. So on the nose dialogue, so that when it shows up in, you know, wherever, when it shows up in Iceland, it's, it, it won't feel culturally uh, impenetrable to those people. 
Did you see Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets? I am aware of it, but no, I did not see it. I didn't see it either. And in the U.S., it made forty-one million, but it went on to make a hundred and eighty-four million in the rest of the world. Probably still didn't make its budget back because that was an expensive movie. It looked like a very expensive movie, but uh, actually, it did make it back. The production budget was a hundred and seventy-seven million. But I mean, so. like, include marketing in that, and that movie that that's considered a bomb. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a, even, it's a, even with that worldwide gross, but that, that's where we are, and you know we're not we're not making movies that are we're we're not putting on a pedestal movies that cost you know twenty twenty five million dollars, which like for twenty five million dollars you can make a hell of a movie, but it's not it doesn't it wouldn't have the pressure of exporting to the entire universe. It it could literally just be a movie that you know that hits American audiences, but now when the studios are kind of belling up to the bar to make something, they want to make, you know, a home run every time. They want a billion dollars. And to do that, you you have giant franchises or you have movies like Valerian that want to be giant franchises. Well, I think, I think it's really interesting to watch what's happening right now. I think, uh, DC certainly had a home run with Joker and yep. I think that they're going to you're going to see a, a heck of a lot more. And Joker movie. is a surprisingly risky movie for, it, for that a, ilk. It, it really is. You know, and, I'm more used to seeing stuff like Suicide Squad. Um, it's it, polarizing, kind of too. It's a polarizing movie. Like I've met people who are who are not into Joker and they feel like, oh, I wouldn't want my mother to watch Joker. And I feel like it's a great movie. <laughs> it really is a great movie. And if you yeah, don't want. May, yeah, I mean, you know. If your mother doesn't like that, she shouldn't watch it. She shouldn't watch it. Exactly. But, but, uh, but regardless, uh, yeah, it's, it's a interesting world that we're heading into now where the tent poles are still the big tent poles, but the international audience can be even more important than the American well, domestic market. That has been the case for a long time. It's true, but I think it's unintentionally sometimes it's like, they're like, okay, you know what? We're making the movie really for the rest of the world. And if we get something from the U S that's great. <laughs> that is true. Well, the, uh, the Chinese audience especially has opened up a lot of in the last decade. And did, you, did you see The Great Wall? Uh, I did not, but a friend of mine worked on it, actually. Yeah. I did see The Great Wall. That movie made $45 million in the U.S. and 289 in the rest of the world. Yeah, a friend of mine was in uh, China for, I want to say he was there for like nine months doing uh, special effects on that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, Ben, I think that pretty much wraps us up for this episode. Yeah, uh, where can people find you? Again, I think the best place to find me is just go to benrockonline.com and you can find all of my socials on there. If you want to just go straight to Twitter, I'm at Neptune Salad. I'm also on, you name it, Facebook, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, that kind of stuff. I guess don't, don't you name it because, you know, if one of the things you name is Snapchat, I'm not really very active <laughs> on Snapchat. I'm on there. Don't, don't really use it. I'm going to remind people to like, subscribe, follow us on Instagram. On Instagram, we I think we're up to 375 followers now, which is like, hey, that's that's great. Hey, go on iTunes and write a comment. Yeah, write a comment. Write a comment. Write a thing. Do do something to interact with us. We we love that. You know, it makes a big difference, honestly. If you write a comment on any podcast you like, not just ours, uh, it it helps people who are looking for podcasts in that genre to find it. If the more activity there is around one, so that's people liking or writing comments that it, it rises you up through sort share. Of the, the search engine of uh, iTunes. Yeah. Share, share us with a friend, share us with someone else you think might, might like this sort of thing. Uh, and this is going to be our last episode of the decade. You know, really? Whoa. I know we're the uh, next episode. Well, I, I take that back. I think we're going to have a, no, no, this is, this is going to be is a news. Me. Uh, new 2020 technically still the last year of the decade. And then 2021 will be the first year of the new decade. Uh, 
I don't know about that. I, I don't. I it's don't. like how we call like you know the 1900s were the 20th century, and now we're in the 21st century. Like it, the clock starts you, at one. I, I don't. You're making my brain hurt right now. Sorry. Okay. Sorry to hit you with all the math stuff. <laughs> the math about the day. It's too late at night for us to be to be, to be <sighs> diving into this. But yes, this. we we won't be. This will be our last one before uh, Christmas and New Year's. That's right, and then we'll be back. We'll be back with. Uh, well, I think this is going to go live on the thirty first. I think is what that is. So, uh, who do we need to thank? Oh, okay. Let's thank producer Alana Cody. Awesome, thank you. Let's thank uh, Kay Zalatracci. It's been a it's been a great year of you not listening and except that listening and at then one listening time, listening a little bit, and then maybe catching up on a few. Yeah, we got. Well, you know, he might listen to this one though because Walt Lloyd shot Alien Raiders and Kays did the score for Alien Raiders. What? Yeah, Kays multi talented. He Kays. is. He is just a multi hyphenate. There aren't enough hyphens. The hyphen was invented for Kays. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a bunch. Uh, okay, we should thank our editor Ben Katz. Woo! Thank you so much, Ben Katz, for making us not sound stupid. Yes, and uh, I think we did a good job this time. Not too much editing work for you. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. So, and uh, happy New Year, Ben. We'll we'll talk to you in the new year. Uh, okay, who else do we got? Anyone? That's, that's it, man. That's it? All right. Well, thank you, dear listeners, for making 2019 the best year yet for the podcast. This is 40 weeks in a row, I think we've done this, without missing Oof. a week, which is pretty incredible considering we started off with, like, uh, giant, giant gaps. Yeah, we started off in the first, like, five years of this, there would be, like, three, four months between episodes, and we've been putting out one a week. One a week. So when we actually say things now, like, what's your obsession this week? We really mean this week. It that, really that, is. That, it, that is. It is in real time. That's true. That's incredible. All right. So we will see you next year. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.